Okay, welcome back to Firewall. Uh, as usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk, and as usual, this is an episode that will run on Tuesday. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning. Good morning to everybody from the Lower East Side. Yeah, so Hugo uh, asked me to plug this, and of course I didn't, so then he had to go do it and remind me. <laughs> but we are um, in the podcast studio at p and We're at 180 Orchard Street between Houston and Stanton. Uh, we're recording live from here right now. People are walking by in the street and kind of watching us for a minute saying who the fuck are those guys uh and then they do look in here and and give us quizzical looks there's there's an equinox gym right down the street so we get a good little um parade of gym goers past our window here who are always confused um but uh, dog walker but here we are and this is our second take of this podcast uh the first one uh there was a a error i'll just leave it at that and um so we're re-recording but i will say what did I say to you when we finished the podcast before? I said, hey, this is okay, not great. Like, I didn't love it, right? Right. So, so was this maybe, one going to be great? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think this was sort of, we, we in a weird way, we kind of needed a do-over to make it a better episode, and we got one. Uh, great. So we started talking about Sheryl uh, Sandberg at the top of the last yeah. um, recording. We're going to talk about her again. Um, or the first time for our listeners, really. Um, (laughs) Cheryl Sandberg is the... I think they've heard of her before. Yeah. Yeah. Chief Operating Officer of of Meta, who who stepped down last week. She's a pretty major kind of celebrity and and, uh, lightning rod in the the tech industry. Um, She's had, uh, you know, just a few years ago, maybe more like 10 years ago, she was considered someone who might one day run for president. Yeah. Um, That seems... um, I don't know if absurd is the word, but definitely a lot less likely today than it did then. Yeah. Um, and she's kind of has a has a she's sort of been beaten up pretty badly in the press overall. And um, I think the the Times last week ran a pretty brutal front page story about her um, and how her whole lean in movement was. Uh, they didn't call it a fraud exactly, but but a, a misguided uh, sort of idea for yeah. privileged women and. Um, yeah. So look, look I mean, I, I think that she both rode the wave up and down, right? She, and this is true of almost any person that's that famous and iconic. They're never as good as they're made out to be when they're when they're at their peak, and they're never, almost never, as bad as they're made to be when they're at their nadir. So the reality is, she is an incredibly smart, focused, ambitious, hardworking woman who is obviously very ruthless and has done an incredible job in building a company like Facebook, uh, which is, you know, worth, I don't know, $700 billion, last time I checked the market cap, something like that. So, um, but at the same time, in the same way that as Facebook was sort of celebrated in sort of the late aughts and early teens as this sort of incredible new way of connecting the world and democratizing things and bringing people together, and they really um, used that narrative to their advantage, and she used that to then create the lean-in movement, Lean movement, get her. I can't say that word. Movement, movement, um, and uh, yeah, uh, and you know, turn herself into like a global celebrity. Normally, the COO of a company is not a global celebrity, right? But but in her case, she became one. Um, look, in 2016, when we were thinking about Mike Bloomberg running for president as independent, she was my choice for who would be his VP because my view was young woman, highly respected, and we just doubled down on our strengths, like tech and innovation and creative and intelligence. Now, look. How did that go over with the others? Was there general support among the other of Bloomberg's team for that? Well, I told Mike it, and he's like, his actually his answer was, 
we can't have two Jews on the on the ticket. And I said, <laughs> I think if someone's not going to vote because you're Jewish, that yeah. you at the top of the ticket is pretty much going to kill us already. Like, I don't really see how we're going to lose a lot more here. Um, and but you know, and look, the I, double Jew. I, ticket. Yeah, just to be clear, my decisions, Mike Bloomberg's decisions are made by Mike Bloomberg and nobody else. So it's not like uh, you're going to sneak her uh, in there. Yeah, but but with that said, it does show you sort of how popular she was that to me she made sense as a slightly counterintuitive choice for someone like Mike if he were to run as an independent which would just require doing things incredibly differently if you even want to have a shot so from there to now where I don't think you know the 2024 presidential candidates right now would agree to do a public event with her on either side of the aisle I think that they would find that she is too toxic and you know the problem is the left sort of, as, as you noted, has come to hate her because they see her as a symbol of inequality and out-of-control wealth and arrogance privilege, by Silicon Valley yeah. and privilege and all the things. You know, once the New York Times changed their business model from kind of trying to objectively report on things to just saying, we are going to make our customer base feel really good about themselves by excoriating anyone who's more successful than they are, um, then she was kind of fucked on the left. And the problem on the right is they believe that Facebook discriminates against them and they have some examples that maybe have some some a, a point to it at the same time oh my god did she do a lot to reach out to republicans she I mean, did and, and here's the thing also facebook has been the greatest organizing tool for republicans in the history of their party so up until call it 2008 whatever it was democrats almost always had a significant advantage when it came to get out the vote and field campaigns because they had unions right and unions are on the boots on the ground and they're able to mobilize them once Facebook came out, what the Tea Party did that was so brilliant was that they realized, oh, we can use this tool to organize our people on the ground in a grassroots manner, um, just like the Democrats do. And that really transformed um, the way that Republicans do politics, especially grassroots politics. And so I don't think that the conservative movement is where it is today, for better or for worse, for worse in, in my view, but either way, um, without Facebook. And that's obviously not what Mark Zuckerberg meant to build when he set out, but I think he, there are a lot of things that happened at Facebook that he didn't mean to happen that that became it. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think she's just sort of a symbol on, on both sides of it. And the question is, okay, where do you go from here if you're her, right? So one is, you don't have to go anywhere, right? She, she's a billionaire. She has a family. I think she's getting married again. Like, you know, fuck everyone, do whatever you want is a completely valid uh, take on this whole thing. That's what she wants. Or... She could say, I want to restore my public image. And I think the way to do it here would not be kind of like Chris Kelly. And there are other people who are kind of involved in Facebook and then kind of said, no, that they're, they're evil after all. I think maybe even Chamath did that at some point. Um, I, I don't think that that would be believable coming from her. And I, th I imagine she believes in the work that she's done. So she wouldn't want to say that. But if she finds a cause that she finds really meaningful, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, uh, women in the workplace or abortion rights or immigration guns, whatever it is, if she really focuses on it, two things will happen, I think, simultaneously. One is um, her reputation will improve because if they see you genuinely doing stuff and you have to be willing to put your money and your political capital and your name and your effort into it, but if they see you genuinely working on it for long enough, um, they start to believe it and you get some credit for that. But also, if the two real keys to happiness are relationships and fulfillment, um, if you have a cause that you care that much about that you're really making progress on, 
that generates a tremendous amount of personal fulfillment, which will just make you a happier person. So even if it doesn't restore her reputation, so what? So, you know, that's what I would do if I were her. But look, everyone is very good, I'm sure, at spending her time and money uh, in the ways that they think they, that Let she should. Let me ask you two quick questions on, on her. So first, she's someone who, like you, kind of straddled the worlds of kind of politics. And, and I mean, she was never a political person exactly, but she was yeah, Washington. She worked the Treasury. Yeah, yeah, and worked for Larry Summers. So she, she was sort of a tech kind of Washington hybrid yeah. character. Um, what did you... What, about the way she managed that was like illuminating to you. This because it was a little before you. you yeah, were sure, doing both. Sure, you were more bit. of a so, political person back yeah, then. Yeah. So I, a few things. So one is I think she discovered the same thing that I learned, which is politics and tech startup cultures are actually fairly similar, um, especially political campaigns, even more than sort of the sec- office of the secretary of the treasury. But that kind of energy and ambition, and you're kind of buying into a central mission, whether it's the candidate or the product. And this kind of, of a specific end date, whether it's the election itself or kind of the IPO or whatever the liquidity event is on the tech side. So one is they were culturally more similar than I think anyone realized. I think she, she realized that. I think when I started doing Uber, I started to realize this too. And that kind of led to everything that we've, we've built since then. So that's, that's number one. Number two is I think generally speaking, the private sector vastly underappreciates the level of skill it takes to run a government well or to run a major political campaign well. And yes, is your average person in government arguably less valuable or talented than your average person in the private sector from a hiring perspective, if you're CVS or whatever it is? Yeah, maybe so, right? But people running, you know, the Treasury Department or the White House or or New York City City or a governor's office or whatever it is um, tend to be unbelievably talented people. And I think her... She proved that, right, uh, by going to Facebook. And so in a way, I, I kind of really always appreciated that because I felt like, you know, right on, like here's someone who um, has gone from government into tech and has absolutely been incredibly successful. Um, now, look, I, I do think in a weird way, some of her downfall, though, was the lack of her own political acumen. So she got— Right, well, that's yeah. the next question I was going to ask, actually, because so they had this person who seemed to be so wired in Washington, and yet— Washington is now one of their biggest problems. Yeah. So, so was that was that kind of inevitable given the way the company was growing? And some some of it was inevitable, but I think a lot of it also is they made some really strategically wrong decisions early on that have haunted them ever since. And and what she was doing as someone who understood and was wired in Washington was protecting Facebook from regulation. What they thought is we want to fight off all attempts at regulation all the time, and that's how we will build our business. And that proved to be a huge mistake, right? Because ultimately, what Facebook, I assume, now has realized and the rest of the world knows, which is they can't moderate all the content on their platform on their own, right? Maybe no one can ever moderate the content on their platform, but it it is way too hard to do. And they took a public position of, hey, we got it. All government, academics, regulators, all you'll do is screw it up, stay out of our way. And she did a good job in sort of securing that position for them. But... As a result, instead of having this sort of broader body that is trying to solve this problem that you could point to every time something goes wrong and say, yeah, we know, we're, you know, they're fucking it up. Um, Instead, they just own the problem every, or they had to, they were blamed for it every single time. And so fundamentally, it put them in a position now where they are 
hated in Washington, hated by both parties, singled out by both parties. Um, and so as, as effective as their GR operation was in the early years in terms of fending off regulation, uh, it has been equally ineffective since. So that's a good segue into our next topic, which is a uh, you wrote a column that's being published this week in Protocol. Um, it's sort of about big tech regulation as the last standing uh, bipartisan issue, and and you had some analysis in that story about a Supreme Court decision. You want to walk us? Through, yeah, yeah sure. So, so, and I'll jump ahead for a second, and we'll come back to this. But we're going to talk a little bit about a sitting Republican congressman from Western New York who, after a mass shooting in his area in Buffalo, expressed support for an assault weapons ban and had to literally withdraw from the, his reelection because it was so at odds with, with what the, the party faithful believe there. So we live in a world where— You completely scrambled my order. I want you, you to know. You I completely understand. scrambled it. Um, you, you can, not only can you not—you can't think anything different from the party line. You can't say anything different from the party line. And the minute you do, um, you know, everyone comes after you, right? And it's either people doing it who are not in office, but they get attacked on Twitter or whatever it is, or people who are in office. So— we live in a world, literally, I think the column opens along the lines of, you know, when Democrats say they like ice cream, Republicans say that there are Chinese, you know, microchips for spying embedded in, in the ice cream. When, when app, Republicans say they like apple pie, Democrats say that apple pie is a symbol of oppression and it has to be banned. And, and I'm being a little facetious, but not really, which is everyone really stays in their corners all the time, except for tech regulation. And, and what to me was notable, so last week, the Supreme Court did an emergency review of a Texas law that basically created requirements for social media platforms on who they are allowed or not allowed to put on their platform. And it was basically the, you know, Twitter shouldn't have banned Trump bill, effectively. Um, and it kind of, the, the tech companies immediately sued, said that it violates the First Amendment, kind of went up through, through the courts, got to the U.S. Supreme Court. And what was interesting about it isn't necessarily that, that kind of big tech won that particular argument. It's the coalition of justices on it, which to me was really striking. So... Uh, the five that supported it, uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice, appointed by George W. Bush, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Associate Justice, appointed by Donald Trump, um, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, very liberal, uh, Associate Justice, appointed by, by Barack Obama, Stephen Breyer, uh, Clinton. appointed by Clinton, and then Amy Comey Barrett, appointed by Trump. So you have Two people who are really liberal, two people who are really conservative, one person who leans conservative in Roberts, but not completely. And then on the other side, it was sort of the same thing, right? You had some hardcore conservatives, Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas opposing, but Kagan, Elena Kagan, Kagan right? brilliant, right? She joined them and like she saw it, you know, the way they saw it. And so to me, it was like, wow, even in a place as polarized these days as the Supreme Court, where they're literally about to issue an opinion that overturns Roe v. Wade, um, this issue is still different enough from everything else that it kind of scrambles the political mix. And Which is nice to see in a way, too, right? Because you're just so used great. to the, 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 the sort of the party line in the Supreme yeah, Court, so which I, is exactly what the Supreme Court's not supposed to be. Right. So I started looking at it a little closer. And, like, you know, there are examples of this all over the place, right? So as we talked about before, the Senate J Judiciary Committee passed legislation that really expanded antitrust you know, authority. Um, you know, it's only gone through one committee so far, and the odds of anything ever happening in Congress are close to zero. But uh, it was a bipartisan bill. Amy Klobuchar led it, but Chuck Grassley... Uh, who's the ranking member on judiciary, was a co-sponsor right there along with her, got a lot of support. Um, you're seeing similar efforts in the House. Um, on the state level, California passed something called the CCPA in 2018 that provides uh, some degree of privacy uh, of, and data protection for California consumers. Three other states followed suit, two purple states, Colorado and Virginia, and one extremely red state in Utah. 
um, foundations. Uh, Brookings and Heritage both agree on tech regulation and both think that it needs to be uh, a lot more aggressive. So where does it go from here? Because one thing that seems to be lacking is the major political figure on either party who's really going to lay down on this issue and make it their thing. I mean, you have Elizabeth Warren on the left. She doesn't have a ton of credibility, certainly has zero on the on, on the other side of the aisle, but but has not that much in her own party at this point. Um, what's the what's the what's going to happen next, and who's going to who's going to push it? So I, push I, it I along? don't think it's that some hero emerges and sort of become and, and pushes. Not going to be Josh Hawley. No, because look, they all have their. He he might vote for a tech regulation bill. He's, he's a big cr- critic of big tech, but for very specific political reasons. I think it's more the other way around. It's not that that like some hero arises from the darkness, you know, the phoenix from the rising ashes, and, and saves the day. I think it's that. When the Republicans take back Congress this fall, which seems extremely likely, um, and the Democrats still control the White House for two more years in Biden, the assumption will be nothing will get done. It'll be like kind of McConnell-Obama, right, where just absolutely nothing can move. Even even confirmations will be difficult to do, let alone proactive legislation. But then still, you know, could something happen, right? And the one issue, I think, where you have a decent shot of maybe everyone agreeing, like, hey, this is one place where we want to demonstrate to the public that we got something done um, and we want to follow popular sentiment, you know, tech regulation, whether it's repeal of Section 230 or the expansion or creation of, of protection for consumers or more antitrust prosecutions. Those are the kinds of things that maybe in 2023 and 2024 could still happen despite a divided Congress and White House. If you were running uh, tech policy for the White House, how would you position Biden on this to to do something once he's got the Republicans in charge of the House and Congress, which he likely will? What's what's a way that he can make this like a substantive win going into 2024 against presumably against Trump? Yeah, I mean, a few things. So one is. they should be using their executive authority much more aggressively to deal with these issues, right? So, um, for example, I think I mentioned I testified before the FTC a couple of weeks ago about tech regulation. I then had a follow-up email with a staffer there. I said, okay, thanks for having me, but what's going to happen now, right? Right. I don't really care about testifying for the sake of testifying or hearing for the sake of a hearing. Like, what are you going to do with it? Um, And they were like, oh, well, we're not really able to pass legislation. It was up to Congress. She kind of punted, right? It was like nothing really. Um, So it was a hearing for the sake of a hearing. Um, But there are agencies, I think, especially the Federal Communications uh, Commission, that really could chip away at Section 230, use your executive branch powers to do so. And if I were Biden, um, I would quietly convene uh, a group of Republicans and a group of Democrats, um, both members of Congress, but you know, advocates, think tanks, academics, regulators, and say, look, we all agree this problem exists. Um, why don't we just try to quietly, apolitically do something about it? And maybe something comes out of that that has enough support that a McConnell or a McCarthy has to let it happen. Um, and look, one of the places where the Republican members will have the most leverage will be in the Speaker and Senate Majority Leader elections. McConnell obviously has a lock on it. But, you know, McCarthy, the assumption is that he will win, but who knows, right? Other people could emerge. He's The, the far right doesn't really like him. So, you know, if you were a group of eight moderate Republicans or eight whatever Republicans, right-wing Republicans, and you said, all right, uh, McCarthy, in, in return for the, our speaker vote, you got to move this bill, you have the ability of the leverage to negotiate something like that. So I, I would be a super aggressive on this if I were Biden. Now, he does not seem to be super aggressive about 
anything, right? So, and sometimes maybe that's to the good. It's certainly a nice contrast from Trump. Um, but at the same time, you know, I could list 10 different tech issues that Washington could be dealing with, like whether it's um, autonomous cars or delivery drones or taking cannabis off of Schedule 1 or all these different things that, that would be good for innovation um, that if I were president, not that I'll be president, but if I were, I would try to aggressively accomplish through executive orders that they haven't really done. Uh, Chris Jacobs is a, is a Republican congressman from uh, the Buffalo area of yep. state. And he just announced that he was not running for re-election because he, um, well, what did he do? He, he, he had a very gentle um, comment about uh, supporting gun control. Yeah, I mean, so like this is a guy who his, I don't think the, the shooting in Buffalo was in his district, but it was right around there, same media market for sure. Um, then Texas happens. And there's been like 10 more shootings since then. And he says in a speech, you know, maybe we ought to look at banning assault weapons or regulating them or something like that, right? It, it was fairly mild, right? And then all of a sudden, he the got wrath of God. the wrath of the Republican Party. The official party withdrew their endorsement of him. Every group withdrew their endorsement of him. Um, the state Republican Party chairman said, I'm going to primary him now. Carl Palladino just jumped into the race. And this guy had to retire. I mean, he's now not running for re-election because he had no shot at winning all of a sudden um, because he made Don't these Don't you comments. think he should have hung in there and just been a martyr and gone down? Well, what's the difference? I mean, I think I think he, he did— Well, it makes it bigger. Like, if he just sort of goes in meekly into the night, doesn't he, like— However, I don't know how much cash he has on hand. And how would you raise more money if you were him at this point, right? Like, maybe you could try to go to the— Jeffrey you know, Katzenberg, maybe? Yeah, right. But, like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I think he did the—I think the thing that he did that is notable is he showed how intolerant both sides are— to any other points of view, and it really proves, I think, the fundamental thesis of this podcast and everything that we do, which is every policy output is shaped by a political input, and despite the fact that we keep having all of these terrible shootings, um, if you are a Republican running in a primary, anything less than absolute fealty to guns uh, is unacceptable, right? There was an article a couple of days ago about how the two Senate candidates in Republican side in Washington, Pennsylvania, kept making ads to show who's more and more of a supporter of, of assault weapons. Um, and even, you know, today, you know, they're talking about this bipartisan deal in Congress on guns. It's fucking nonsense, right? It does, doesn't deal with guns at all. It's, it's mental health and school safety, which are the NRA's talking points, number one. Number two, the school safety stuff seems to have been a hindrance potentially in Texas, not, not, not a help. And yes, of course we should fund mental health. I, I think we should fund mental health the same way we fund physical health. But um, blaming everything on mental health is just an excuse to not actually do anything about guns. And the fact that Democrats are going to celebrate this some, some kind of victory when it's not. And Republicans are really smart. They'll like drag this thing out and they'll finally put 10 votes on in the Senate. And okay, we, we compromise. Like they didn't compromise at all, right? But yet it looks like they did. And so I just like, we keep living in a world where we think common sense will prevail and therefore dictate what happens, right? Children are being slaughtered. Therefore, we will do something about it. And the answer is, we will only do something about it if it is in the political interest of the people who are capable of doing something about it to do so. And until you change the inputs, you can't change the outputs. Now, just uh, shortly after the shooting in Texas, uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, caused some uh, a stir when he confronted the governor of Texas uh, at a press conference. And it, it seemed like a pretty bold act. Are there 
other things you'd like to see Democrats doing in just terms of breaking from the script? Because it does seem— No, I, I think everything think they're, they're doing is, you know, ineffective by and large. You know, occasionally they'll pass— But that's what I mean, doing—is there—is there—what is the yeah, way you— Yeah, support me in mobile voting. That's what you do. The only way to fix this is to expand turnout, either stop gerrymandering or—which they're not going to do—or dramatically expand turnout in Republican primaries so that— support for assault weapons becomes a lot less strong, and therefore Republicans have the ability to, to work on this issue and to try to regulate guns a little better. That is it. If they don't do that, none of this other shit matters. And you know what? They're not going to help me because, number one, um, they like things the way they are, too, right? They, they Low turnout primaries is their way to hold on power as well. So, like, Chuck Schumer has spent a career talking about how he's a big supporter of, of gun safety. Um, but if you said, Chuck, let's do mobile voting, he would say, no, because then AOC will be better at the internet than me, and she'll find some way to primary me and beat me, and so I could never do that. So every Democrat in power, every Republican, every union, every trade group, every lobbyist, just about, and there are some exceptions, but not maybe 10% at most, um, likes things the way they are because all they care about is having power, and they do. So um, the Democratic Party as a whole I don't think it's ever going to help me on mobile voting. In fact, we tried to do a, a pilot that we would fund in Alaska a couple of years ago, and the DNC prohibited them from doing it. Um, so, But fundamentally, if you are a person in this country and you are sick of the gun epidemic, the opioid epidemic, the immigration crisis, that we're not doing anything, climate change, the fact that people still don't have access to health care, the fact that people still don't have access to food, that our schools suck, that our bridges are crumbling, if you don't like all of that, um, complaining on Twitter means nothing. Uh, giving more money to candidates who are already gerrymandered and therefore going to win means nothing. The only thing you can do is change the inputs. And until you do that, everything we have will only get worse. Uh, and again, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. At the rate we're going, I don't think we're one country in 20, 25 years. Um, well, we'll have to save that for another podcast just because it's too big a subject to work into today's um, episode. But I did want to sag into a related uh, a related update on mobile voting. There was a, a, a op-ed published. In yeah, the- we picked up a really thank you a really big supporter last week in Martin Luther King the uh, Third. He came out and endorsed our bill, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about it. Very meaningful for a few reasons. One, here's an incredibly well-known, respected figure who is supporting our position. Two, I think it validates our whole argument that we have with our coalition of pastors and African-American legislators uh, about access and why it's so important. Um, and three, you know, I think we can hopefully mobilize him not just for what he wrote, but to start making calls and start putting some pressure on individual members of the council. Um, we still have the same problem, though, where there's a guy named Charles Allen who is just like a full of shit rich white guy um, who's wildly arrogant, who is the head of the committee that where we need a hearing to be held. We already have more votes than we need to pass the bill in the council itself, and he won't allow it. And you know what, Charles Allen? When those kids get shot in the next classroom, that's on you, man, because you, by not allowing mobile voting to move forward, are reinforcing the system we have right now. And so all of the flaws of the system, especially gun violence, that's on your that, that blood's on your hands. It's hard to know what to say after a remark like that, but I will. Uh, there, there was another uh, another pretty n- nice moment for uh, for your um, political portfolio um, in Vermont. Oh yeah, you got me, the, This the, is positive. Let me thank Governor Phil Scott uh, for signing our universal school meals bill. Uh, it means eighty thousand kids now in Vermont will have breakfast and lunch at school every day, free for everyone, no questions asked. 
Um, it, it's a one-year program, so we're going to have to get it renewed, so not quite as good as if we made it permanent like in California. But uh, third state to do it, and we had good bipartisan support. We had an incredible uh, partner in Hunger Free Vermont. And so, you know, nice to see that all the effort that we put into this has paid off, and, and it's going to result in kids who need food getting food. Um, there's an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal last week um, about how uh, Disney World is extremely popular with uh, gay tourists and gay families. Um, it has been for a long time, but in, over the years, more and more events um, have been uh, sort of organized and, and tailored to their yeah. to their visits and and to sort of celebrating um, the you know diversity of America and 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 realizing that you know there's a lot of different definitions of families out there. Um, and that uh, it, it was it was a really cool story because it it, it showed the evolution of a company uh, that historically was uh, not that open minded, um, but that realized for purely commercial reasons it made sense um, to make uh, a lot more people comfortable being at uh, at Disney World. Yes, yeah, so it, it gets into me kind of a, a larger question of. We are seeing corporations become uh, more politically engaged, I think, in part because both their employees and their customers are demanding it, right? We saw the definition itself by the Business Roundtable, which is not the end-all, be-all, but it's a respected organization, of the purpose of a corporation change from one that is solely a fiduciary obligation to maximize profits for shareholders to one that is both that but also uh, a citizen in the world that has to try to actually do some good. Uh, we've seen things like we had uh, Martin Whitaker from Just Capital on the podcast a couple of months ago, and they put out this ranking of companies kind of based on their global societal impact. And I think that's gotten a lot of attention and press. So the question becomes, we know that companies are now responding to political questions. And the thought, the question I have is, what's motivating their then when they choose to take a make a decision, when they choose to engage, um, what are motivating their actions? And my suspicion is um, it's Twitter, it's punditry, it's advocates screaming at them, it's some group of employees who kind of latch on to it. And those are the wrong reasons to make a decision like this, right? All they're doing then is just crumbling to to public pressure and, and nothing else. Um, I think it's wonderful what Disney did, and I think that you've got... 10% of the population identifies as, as gay, and everyone under the age of 45 or 50 that I know, or I live in Manhattan, so it's not a, not a great universe, but basically just if you look at the poll. It is a great universe, but yeah, not, but just not, not a great not, sample. Not, not, yeah, a great sample, <laughs> exactly. Um, supports you know LGBT rights. So you know ultimately, I think that this is going to make Disney a lot of money, and it was great that, that you know there was a huge influx of LGBTQ uh, Disney patrons this past weekend. Um, so it gets to the question of when you are a corporation and you feel like you either have to take a political stand on something or you're just not going to be able to stay out of it, what's motivating your strategy, right? And my gut is they're motivated by fear, by their comms team, by their lawyers, as opposed to what do our customers want and how do we maximize that? And by the way, that may mean sometimes leaning into a controversy, right? And saying, our customers really care about this thing, so we are gonna get involved in this fight in this way or that way. But but I just, you know, my suspicion is their actions are motivated by the wrong things. And as a result, they're likely to make worse choices than they should. And as a result, it will ultimately deter them from wanting to do good things. Um, we have one final topic yes, uh, for today, 
which is a, a personal obsession of yours, or a, is it a compulsion? I don't know what it is, but Bradley asked me about um, whether I listen to songs over and over again. Like if I like a, a particular song, do I, do I listen to it like dozens or even hundreds of times in a row? Yeah. Um, I, I don't really do that, but Bradley, you do. I do. So, so let's start with the just acknowledgement that like, I have OCD. It's not one of those people like says it like I am diagnosed with it. I am medicated for it. Like I have it. So of course the fact that I would have obsessive and compulsive thinking about something is not surprising because I struggle with this my whole life. But I do think there's more there than just you know people with OCD. I think it's that sometimes a song captures a mood or evokes a mood, good or bad. It could be pain or it could be joy, um, and it so reinforces it that's the only thing you want to listen to it's the only thing that means anything to you and listening to it provides this larger emotional and spiritual service to you um, and so I think that like the role of an individual song capturing someone's kind of ethos at that moment and then really delivering value for them as a result I, I think is really important uh, and I was just kind of curious when I sent you that text you know a while back of like is this something that everyone does? Or, you know, recently this happened to me. So I, what was the song? Wolf Like Me by TV on the radio. And, and is that a band that you listen to a lot? Not you that just, much, and no. And do you knew the song? I, I, I knew You'd the song. Yeah, I knew the song. I knew the band. It just hit you. And it was like on some playlist that I had, and it hit me, and it captured my... I was, I was getting on a plane, um, and I listened to the song basically the entire flight from Montego Bay back to JFK. You're kidding. Pretty much, yeah. Just um, over and over again. Pretty much, yeah. And um, now, if someone was observing you from the seat over, would they have any idea? Like, do you have any? Do you like tap your head or like, like, like? Do you do anything that makes, or are you just like stoic, sitting there just listening to the song over and over again? I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to see. My, my guess is that what it the, feels like no one particularly noticed one way or the other. Um, but, but. I, I do feel... You're with Harper, right? I was by myself. You're by yourself. Oh, right, because yeah. you went to that wedding and you, you come back by yourself. And you... Okay, so that, that that's a little different. So you're sort of trying to create your own space in a way. Well, in a way, it was just the, 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 the mood that I was in, the feeling I was having, um, which wasn't a, a great one at that moment, but um, nonetheless was captured by the song. And the song is not particularly emotional or a tearjerker or like you know it's definitely it's, not a tearjerker it's no, like a very kind of aggressive it's an aggressive song, song but yeah. it's not metal it's not like no, it's you not know metal. nothing like that so it's kind of dancey a little bit yeah a little bit but it, it just kind of hit it for me at that moment and i think you know the answer is it's a different song for everyone in every circumstance and even you could have the same emotion two different times and two different songs will be the right ones for that particular moment um but but i do think it's like a phenomenon that that most people uh, at some point or another end up participating in. And so I was just kind of curious about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, I saw this concert on Friday night. I went to see Bonnie Bear at, uh, at Forest Hills, and he played a version of a song that's usually a, a very sort of chill, kind of more acoustic song called Blood Bank, and he does this version of it in concert that's just way more intense and more like, like a lot more sonically kind of... Uh, I don't know if diverse is the right word, but 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 has a has a has a real kind of expansiveness to it, and I was so thrilled, like to on the train on the way back into the city to find that there was a live version on Spotify, and I did listen to it many so, many. Tell times me how around. you got. I mean, that now this is like completely of, of no interest. To, yeah, but what was the train that you took back from the Forest Hills uh, Arena back to the city? Long Island Railroad. And where did you get it? Literally right out in front of the stadium. So that's where to go. So we went with our friends Tom and Amber and saw Tom Petty play there a couple of years ago. Right. 
And for some, you know, because Took I was like, the subway. Oh, no, I was like, well, you know, I must have a nice fancy Uber drive me around. Right. The fucking asshole shit that I do. And so. <laughs> And we took us like 40 minutes to get to like get to a place where a car could even reach us to take us back to the city. So I'm going to see the AES there uh, October 1st. And so. Uh, oh, no, I'm, you have to. You have yes, to take all because it's the I'm first stop. fully committed. And, it's, and you literally walk out and you're right there at the entrance to the there's that little community around the stadium. We had started off in Long Island City at this like really good Mexican place um, and then kind of made our way in from there. But even then, you still could take a Long Island Railroad. So, yeah, that is a, a good lesson learned because it was uh, it was a great concert. It was one of the last he did before he died. Um, but getting out of it, it was miserable. Um all right, Bradley, you're on vacation oh, next week. Yeah, we have, some we housekeeping. Some, yeah, Sorry. Some, some, some program notes here. A couple here. things. So number one, yeah, I, I'm out for a little bit. Um, so we're doing two things around that. One is we've recorded more interviews than, than usual lately, and so we're going to have some of those that we can play uh, while I'm away. Two, we're going to have some guest hosts starting with Megan Collins. So uh, I think that'll give you a nice different kind of take on, on Firewall and, and our world. So that's number one. Number two, so I'm sitting here in this beautiful studio and watching people walk by in Orchard Street. And it just kind of hits me like, you know what, maybe it's time for our podcast to grow up a little bit, right? You know, it was this sort of super <laughs> scrappy thing, and our listenership is good. Um, and, you know, we're not, we don't have to sort of do ads or anything like that, so we can make this sort of high value for, for our listeners. Um, but I'd like to take it to the next level. I'm not even sure what that means, but, but I'd like to. So my request to you is, is twofold. One, if you can... Please rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Wondery, whatever it is. Um, and even if you don't have time to, re to review, just give us five stars if, if you think we deserve that um, <laughs> or less if you think we don't. Um, and then second is, you know, we want to get better. You know, we really put a lot of work into this, um, trying to kind of deliver a better and better product to our listeners. So if there are things that you want us to talk about, things that you think that works on the podcast, things that doesn't work on the podcast, guests you'd like to see on the show, things you want me to talk about, things you want me to shut up about, whatever it is, love to hear it. So if you just go to, you know, firewall.media, um, you can give us your comments and thoughts. And, um, you know, I, I just think that would be really helpful in, in us delivering a better and better podcast for everyone. And Bradley, you will be back in a couple of weeks. I'll be back and, in a couple of we'll weeks. And uh, we'll have Megan um, standing in for you next week. Yep. Um, and have a, great, uh, have a great time away. Thanks, man. Bye.